Hello and welcome to The Spectator podcast. I'm Isabel Hardman. This week, antagonism between Emmanuel Macron and Italy's Matteo Salvini ratcheted up over immigration. Are they the leaders of an ideological battle in Europe? But pro-immigration or not, both Macron and Salvini smashed through conventional politics in the global surge of populism. As we reach the 10th anniversary of the 2008 crash, we ask, did the financial crisis lead to greater populism? And last, why have Americans been boycotting Nike? First, is there a battle brewing in Europe over immigration? On the one side, Emmanuel Macron seems to represent the ideals of a globalist EU, the natural successor to Merkel's liberalism. On the other, Italy's Matteo Salvini is bringing anti-immigrant populism into the very heart of the EU, supported by movements across the continent and fellow leaders like Hungary's Viktor Orban. Christopher Caldwell argues in this week's cover piece that this is an ideological battle for Europe's future. He joins me today, together with Sophie Pedder, The Economist's Paris bureau chief and author of Révolution Française, a new biography on Macron. Christopher, in your cover piece, you argue there is an ideological divide in Europe, with Macron leading one side and Italy's Salvini leading the other. Just who is Matteo Salvini? Well, Matteo Salvini is um, an Italian politician with the League Party. The League is a party that was founded in the 1980s as the Northern League. It was a sort of a separatist, sort of Milan and Turin-based movement, which has served in, in Italian governments before, and not necessarily as the most radical part of them. It was in the Berlusconi government. But Salvini became the, the, the party leader a few years ago, and he has turned it into a more, tried to turn it into a more national party. And he's now the Minister of Interior in uh, the new Italian government, which is a coalition between his league and the, and the more street theatrical kind of um, five-star movement. And Sophie, do you agree that he does represent the ideological opposition to Emmanuel Macron? Well, in a way, yes. I mean, I think what you're looking at in Europe is a sort of broadening out of a, of, of a debate that we saw in France last year during the election campaign, which ended up as a, a second round fight between Emmanuel Macron, who is the sort of centrist, broadly liberal minded candidate against Marine Le Pen, who is, you know, from the what used to be known as the National Front. And, you know, representing the sort of nationalist, xenophobic, anti-immigrant sort of wing of, of, of politics. And that, that we've seen in France. And now you're very much seeing the same kind of ideological debate being played out in Europe. And I think that it's right to identify Salvini in a way as the sort of spokesman of that. But there are others. And, you know, they, they, they do represent a very strong force in, in politics and I think are going to shape the way that European politics plays out, certainly in the coming months, but probably in the coming years. You know, on the, on the front page of, of Le Monde for, for Thursday, there was a similar attempt to draw a, a polarity in, in Europe, except they chose Viktor Orban of Hungary as the person who makes the other poll, the nationalist poll against uh, Macron's uh, globalist poll. Yes, of course. And, if, and, you know, one could have Marine Le Pen, one could even choose somebody up to a point from the radical left, you know, the far left. I mean, in France, I would think of someone like Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who runs heads a party called Unsubmissive France. Now, he he is very much from the left. He used to be a socialist himself and then sort of defected and, and founded this radical left party a few years back. Now, he he, he is in many respects a, a representative of the sort of populist anti, anti-European or at least Eurosceptic 
and populist-leaning wing of politics, but from the left. So, I, But I do think that that is the sort of fundamental uh, dividing line that we're seeing emerging in European politics. And Christopher, who is winning the standoff between these two forces in Europe at the moment? Well, let's say right now you have to say that um, Salvini is really riding high. He's rising in the polls in Italy, and Macron has had a very difficult um, summer. He's had two of his most... Um, popular cabinet members resign. He's had a big um, scandal over a bodyguard of his who who seemed to have a, a fondness for, for beating up demonstrators. And, and um, so he's had, he's had a hard time of it. But I think that um, Macron has certain structural advantages, which will, you know, I don't think that this is a, a, a permanent state of affairs. I, I, I mean, there are ups and downs in this. I think that, you know, when you look at France, we've already had, in a way, a sort of test case of how can a, a centrist liberal politician hold that ground against populism and against nationalism because Macron was elected last May and he's been in, in, in office now for about 16 months. And, you know, you can see both the advantages and, and also the, the or, or, you know, what, what he's managed to do, but also the incredible risks in what he's what he's doing. I think that, you know, he has managed to and he has to try and bring about some results. I mean, and when I say results, it's got to be economic results. He's got to see growth. He's got to see job creation. He's got to see a sense that France is sort of moving forward and is breaking out of that sort of sclerotic problem it's had in the past. And if he doesn't get those results, he is going to find it very difficult to face down populism next time round. You know, he himself is probably going to face re-election in 2022. So how it all works out for him is in a way a kind of test case of whether or not it it can work. And as was just mentioned, you know, he's also coming up against his own issues. Um, they're not to do with the nature of his politics. It's to do with the nature of the exercise of power. But, you know, it's it does mean that, you know, what, what happens in France has has and whether he can make it work has has implications for everyone else, I think, outside Europe, too. Christopher, despite their differences, do you not think that both men show the that populism is really gaining a victory in Europe as well as across the pond in America? Well, again, it has its ups and downs. I mean, Macron's election was only a little over a year ago, and that was um, that was certainly not a victory for for populism. But as far as Salvini and Macron go, as far as their personal clash goes, it tends to take uh, place on the terrain of, of immigration. And on that terrain, which is the big, this is the big issue in all European countries. It is the biggest, it's really driving politics in every European country. On that issue, I think Salvini has the clear rhetorical advantage and every time they've they've clashed, and it's usually been over Salvini's um, refusal to permit humanitarian boats from non-governmental organizations to land with you know with a with a boat full of um, of refugees or or migrants from North um, North Africa. Whenever they have clashed, Macron has really had very little to say because Salvini has been able to invoke the topic of um, of European solidarity. And um, generally the case that Macron makes against Salvini is a humanitarian one. Salvini has tended to say, okay, if you're such a humanitarian, why doesn't France fulfill the migrant quotas that it agreed to take from from Italy? And, and, and that seems to be something that Macron does not 
feel he can do. And he really hasn't had much to say about that. Sophie, what do you make of that? Yes, I mean, I think migration is, you know, a hugely difficult issue for uh, Macron. You know, if you are essentially in sort of in favour of open borders and migration, I mean, don't forget that during the election campaign, he was the one who said that Merkel's decision to open the door to so many uh, migrants during the Syrian crisis. He called it a, a moment that uh, that she had rescued our collective dignity, meaning Europe's collective dignity. And, you know, so he, he has very much stood up in terms of words for a kind of humane attitude towards immigration. At the same time, you know, he's very aware that that is not a popular position in, in Europe and certainly not in France most of the time. And in, in terms of his deeds, he's shown himself to be a lot less willing to, to open the door. And when uh, there have been boats that have needed ports, France has not been the first country to, to, to offer them a harbour. But I think, you know, migration is, is, a, is a difficult subject. It exposes some of the contradictions in, in Macron's sort of uh, liberalism. At the same time, it's not the only one. And, you know, I think this question of language that was just raised is really interesting. One of the things that struck me when I interviewed Macron for my book was his the point he made about how populism has mastered the sort of language of emotion. And he feels very strongly that, you know, politics are those that are from the centre that are trying to counter populism, cannot just rely on sort of technocratic speeches full of policy details that mean nothing and don't sort of carry any emotional value. And it's very difficult to do that when you it's easier when you do it from a populist point of view it's quite difficult to do it from a more sort of rationalist point of view but i do think he has taken on board the need to sort of carry people through with a sense of a, a, a dream a sort of spirit some something emotional something that will counter the the the, the appeal of, of populism on an emotional basis and finally christopher where does this leave angela merkel well you know, I think that when Macron was elected, I, I think there was a feeling that Merkel had reached about the limit of her ability to lead Europe. I mean, I think that her domestic room for maneuver had been um, had been limited by uh, a sort of domestic by, by German rejection of um, of any continued sort of openness to more migration. And I think that abroad, she had a kind of a sour relationship with Trump. Unlike um, Macron, who actually, for you know, for all their differences in policy, has managed to at least keep the Franco-American relationship alive, and so I think that the, the, what was a, what was anticipated was a, a kind of a changing of the guard, and I have to say, I think that's probably what's happened. I think that's right. I think um, one of the difficulties that uh, Macron is finding, though, is that in the past, you know, France has almost played this sort of junior role in the Franco-German relationship. That's the, been the foundation of, of all sort of major uh, advances in European Union integration as the project was founded on it. But, you know, France in recent years has become very much the sort of junior partner. And Germany has found France, you know, relatively weak to deal with. And right now, I think what they're finding is that France is too ambitious, that what Macron wants, they, they aren't ready to go with it. And that's actually difficult, both for Merkel, because of the domestic constraints that were just identified. But it's also difficult for Macron, because, you know, he does feel very strongly that, you know, there shouldn't be a sort of naive feeling in Europe that we are able to um, sort of uh, continue as before in the face of rising China and uh, American, you know, isolationism, or at least sort of uh, erratic uh, <laughs> leadership. And that this is a moment that Europe has to 
to kind of seize. And it's very difficult to see how he's going to do that if he hasn't got uh, the partners who are willing to sort of back him. So, you know, he, he's actually facing the problem of France being too ambitious right now for, for Germany, I think. Thanks for joining us, Sophie and Christopher. Hello, I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and I present the weekly books podcast at which you'll hear lively discussions from the best and most interesting critics and writers and authors out there, from Charlotte Rampling to Daniel Dennett, all the way past to Michael Morpurgo. I very much hope you'll give us a try. Just search for Spectator Books on the iTunes store. Globalism or not, it seems that the biggest trend in Western politics in the last 10 years is really the rise of populism and extreme politics. It's not just the rise of populism in Europe. Back home, UKIP has come and gone, leaving Brexit in its wake. Corbyn has hijacked the Labour Party. And across the pond, Donald Trump's presidency continues to shock every day. In this week's magazine, Liam Halligan takes a look back over the 10 years since the crash and asks how much of the rise in extreme politics is because of the 2008 financial crisis. I'm joined by Liam now together with economist Anne Pettifer, who advises the Shadow Chancellor, John McDonnell. Liam, you say in your piece that the biggest impact of the crash was a loss of faith in Western capitalism. Just explain that for us. Yes, the financial crisis of 2008 was, of course, very, very serious. A 40% peak to trough fall in Western stock markets, the biggest economic hit since the Great Recession. And yet what I feel is that worse than the crisis was our reaction to it. Crises happen every 10 to 15 years, but it's in how we've responded to the crisis, particularly using uh, quantitative easing, which has increased massively uh, wealth inequality, which hasn't produced growth. Growth remains very sluggish, combined with other things that have happened in the last 10 years, an onslaught of technology that scared a lot of people, and of course, open borders across Europe. All that has led to a rise in populism and caused many moderate voters to question the system, question their commitment to Western liberal capitalism. And we've seen that now in spades by the move away from mainstream politicians on both sides of the Atlantic and towards the extremes. And you're an advisor to John McDonald. Yeah. Do you think the rise of Corbyn is as a result of the crash? I think that that's played a very big part in it. There's no question and that the parliamentary party that advocated the kind of policies that Liam's talked about have lost credibility, essentially, with the, with the rest of the membership. And so, to everyone's surprise, including his own, the movement, you know, came up again, behind Corbyn. Yeah. And I do think, and I mean, I, I, I don't like the term populism. I don't like it applied to him. But there's no doubt. Well, because it's, it, it doesn't, I mean, quite a lot of what is happening is reactionary. If you look at what's happening across Europe, you know, we're seeing the rise of fascism in Europe, and that's being defined as populism. And, and Corbyn has been equated with, with, with it, effectively, with the use of this term. So I just find that uncomfortable. I don't like it. I think we've got to be specific. There's been an uprising, and it's been on both sides of the political spectrum, uh, but they're not equated. That's what I want to make clear. Liam, do you think Corbyn and co are presenting valid solutions to the problems that you outline? No, I, I, I don't. I think a lot of their analysis is right, but their solutions are wrong. But hey, a lot of Marx's analysis was right. Yeah, if you're a student of politics and economics, but a lot of his solutions were wrong too. Look, it's absolutely clear that the the surge towards Corbyn in 
in the last election was in part driven by young professionals trying to buy houses. Unless the Tories massively bring about an increase in housing supply, they will lose the next election. That's something that you and I have discussed before. And that rise in house prices was in part linked to the massive expansion of central bank balance sheets around the world. And QE money is created, and whether it's by the the, the Fed or the Bank of England that have stopped QE for now, or by the ECB and the Bank of Japan, which are still doing QE by bilio, like Bilio, it spreads around the world. And it's along with bankers not being punished after the crisis, along with a lack of bank reforms, along with three quarters of the too big to fail banks still being too big to fail, according to Standard & Poor's ratings, as I said in my piece. You've also had these extremely reckless central bank policies way beyond when emergency measures were justified immediately after the Lehman crash 10 years ago, which have pushed up asset prices everywhere, and Corbyn has rode that wave. But the answer is not more QE, even if you call it people's QE. Can I just say that? I mean, I'm not disagreeing with that. But I want to say two things. One, I think I don't agree with Liam that it's the supply of housing that's the problem, because in the same answer he's made the point that it's this wall of money and it's if a, a big real estate company Cushman they're called I think have argued that there's 450 billion dollars of a wall of money aimed at a finite resource which is Britain's land and Britain's property and that is what has inflated prices take away the wall of money and suddenly housing will become affordable and there will not be a shortage anymore and Ian Mulhern of Oxford Economics has done all the work on how there isn't a shortage of housing. There are more uh, there are more residential properties available than there are households form- forming. So so that's not the problem. The problem is the wall of money. Now I I thought that QE was necessary and I still do. But the problem is we had not just QE, but we had Cameron and Osborne's monetary dominance and fiscal uh, conservatism. And it's that dysfunction, it's that uh, you know, disequilibrium, if you like, in the relationship between monetary and fiscal policy, that is the problem. So the bank has had to do all the heavy lift, all the central banks have had to do all the heavy lifting in the United States, less so now than before, but most particularly in Europe and in Britain. And it's that one-sided nature of the response, entire dependency on monetary policy that has created the imbalances that we see right now. For me, fiscal policy has to play a role, and the opposition to fiscal policy has been entirely irrational, in my view. Liam, do you think that pro-market politicians have learned the lesson of the last 10 years, or are they still making not the same mistakes, but very similar ones? No, I don't think they've learned the lessons at all. I think they've had their head in the sands, particularly on bank reform. I'll move on from Anne's comments on the housing market. I've, I've written a lot about this, the, the no shortage of houses myth that the house, house building industry is right. purporting through certain economists. Um, but moving on from that, let's look at bank reform. We haven't had a, a reimposition of the, the, the so-called Glass-Steagall divide on either side of the Atlantic that keeps crucially taxpayer-backed ordinary deposits of firms and households away from investment banking and and high-rolling risk-taking. And Anne and I totally agree on that. On fiscal policy, though, even though there have been certain instances and certain localities where government spending has been curtailed, the, the big picture, which economists need to keep their eye on, the big picture is that we've seen a massive fiscal expansion. Government borrowing on this side of the Atlantic has gone from 40% of GDP to 
85, 90% of GDP. In the States, it's gone from 60% of GDP to 105% of GDP. So yeah, we've seen that's... this enormous, enormous increase in government spending. And the only reason Western governments are able to sell their bonds is because of ongoing QE. When QE ends this autumn in Europe and later on in the Bank of Japan, we could see some real nasty yeah. instances on Western bond markets. Are you relaxed about that, Anna? No, I'm not at all relaxed about that. The fact of the matter is the public debt has risen because, the, because austerity has contracted the economy. The way to reduce the public debt is to you know, expand tax revenues. And what has happened is that austerity, both in Britain and in Europe, has contracted revenues, has contracted the economy. The economy post-crisis is heavily indebted, is deeply it's nervous. It's growth. It hasn't very, contracted the it's, economy. It's very... It, the, the private sector is heavily indebted. It's not able to borrow from the banks, except it, in fact, very real high rates of interest and and so it's almost comatose and that is the moment in which the roaring lion that is the public sector should st- step in and replace the Tibbin mouse that is the private sector as Mariana Mozzicante argues so for me the problem is that the public you know George Osborne promised us that we would have brought down the debt by 2015 16 here we are in 2018 and it's 90% of gdp despite the fact that we are now smashing up our local government services that local government is almost disappearing i mean what i found most cowardly about osborne's cuts was that they were devolved down to local government and we're now seeing all those services so fundamental to the fabric of our society being demolished and that is because of austerity so although what has happened is it's the growth in spending that is being cut the fact of the matter is that you know the population has expanded and so that cutting back in the growth of spending has you know has led to austerity and that's been really really bad for the economy do you think the public really would go for a party that was proposing higher taxation no I don't think so So where does the money come from the money comes from where it comes from every week I get a message from the debt management office that Mr. Hammond has issued some new bonds, you know, and that and new gilts and has raised finance. All government spending is financed by raising bonds in the capital markets and through the Bank of England. That is then spent and it results in tax revenues generated by that spending. If the spending is productive, that is, you know, and when if it's in employment. Taxation, and this is something I'm having to persuade the Labour Party of, taxation does not pay, does not finance government spending. Is the government Labour Party spending listening? is financed by... No, I'm afraid they're not. They're about as conventional when it comes to taxation as, as some of the Conservatives are, and indeed as Gordon Brown was. So, I mean, but, but that's because there is a widespread public myth, which is perpetuated by, for example, the Institute for Fiscal Studies, that, you know, you can only spend as much as the taxpayer sends home to you after you've spent. You know, but we all know from our own experience that we get a job, we're employed, at the end of the month we, we raise an income, and, and the taxes are taken out of that and go back to the government, you know. So, so I think this, this notion of the way in which government is financed, this misunderstanding has been very harmful. Well, we've sort of stepped through the looking glass, haven't we? We're now sitting in the shade of 
Jeremy Corbyn's magic money tree. We all know from our experience, anyone that's run a business or a solvent household, that you can only borrow so much and for so long. But and, Liam, and, it's and, wrong and, to compare <laughs> the economy okay, to a household. Okay, Please. Okay. okay. Um, yeah, we've been having this debate throughout history where certain politicians and economists say, oh, we can just borrow and spend and it'll be fine. And if you don't want to borrow and spend, you're a nasty person. I'd say, no, you're just economically... Literate. We have, of course, lowered annual borrowing. The deficits come down, but the debt has risen. But debt is very, very high. The danger is if Corbynites purport the idea that we can just keep on borrowing, we can keep printing money, uh, then we're going to end up with a bond crisis. So we've had, we've got a crisis because we've been doing just that since two thousand and nine. Thank you for joining us, Liam and Anne. And last, you might have seen the hashtags Just Burn It and Boycott Nike trending on Twitter recently. These are just some of the responses to Nike's new ad campaign featuring Colin Kaepernick, the first American footballer to protest the national anthem through kneeling instead of standing and with the slogan, believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. Kaepernick says he was resisting structural racism and police brutality in America. But Simon Barnes asks in this week's magazine, can Nike claim equally lofty motives? And will this controversial campaign work? I'm joined by Freddie Gray, our USA editor, and Coleman Hughes, who writes about race issues. Coleman, let's start with you. Is this advert a contribution to racial equality in the US, or is it just a corporate stunt? It's much more of a stunt. I think when you actually drill down into the details of police violence, which is, after all, this subject about which Kaepernick is supposedly protesting, you'll find that there is a problem with police killing too many people in this country, but it's not primarily a racial one. So more white people get killed than black people every year by around a factor of two. And if you just look at unarmed white people, it's, it's still more whites getting killed. And You know, you might say, well, blacks are only 14% of the population. They make up something like 25% of those killed by the cops. But even that, thinking of it in in that way is misleading because it's not as if the police go around like census data collectors killing every hundredth person they walk into. They're getting 911 calls and populations that are overrepresented in crime are going to be overrepresented in terms of dealing with the cops. And multiple analyses have shown that Regardless of race, a suspect is roughly equally likely, whether he's black or white, to be killed by a cop. So no, it's not. this ad is not going to move the ball on racial inequality in any way, shape or form. Freddie, do you agree with that? Or do you think it's virtue signalling or do you think it's actually quite a striking protest? I think I know it's a bit of a boring right-wing cliche to say virtue signalling, but I'm afraid that is pretty much what it is. I think it's just extremely phony. I mean, the thing I find most phony about it is the slogan itself, which is uh, believe in something, even if it means sacrificing everything. I mean, he's clearly not sacrificing everything. He's being paid millions of dollars. He'll probably get a clothing range out of it. It's just uh, disingenuous. And it's particularly disingenuous because he's a sort of middling to average NFL quarterback. I think his complete Coleman may know a lot more about NFL than I do, but I think his completion rate last in the last season he played was under 60% which is not really good enough for a major team player so if we were talking about the Michael Jordan or the LeBron James of the NFL I think he would still be playing it, his protest would have they'd have found a way around it but that is as it is he's he's not really a 
a major superstar in terms of sporting ability. He's just become a celebrity because of this cause. So it sounds as though you actually think that this might be acting against the case for equality. Well, I, I th- no, I just think it's silly. I think it's people pretending that sports is politics in a way. Sports is always political, but it's people trying to turn, almost in a way, turn politics into sport. You're either on the Trump side with all the rednecks and racists who, you know, don't want people who want people to stand to attention for the national anthem, or you're on the Nike sports cool side, which is talking about racial injustice and just feels a bit hipper and cooler. It's it's phony. It's sort of fashion as politics. Coleman, in his piece, Simon Barnes says it's a fascinating development where politics and fashion and sport are, are colliding. Do you think we're going to see a lot more of this? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think the the arrow of that trend seems to be going in one direction only. And I think it, it's very telling that a multi-billion dollar corporation like Nike judges from its own self-interest, from its own profit-maximizing interest, that it is smart to endorse a basically far-left cause at this point, that that is a way to maximize their profit rather than something to avoid, tells you something, it just indicates something about how dominant that strain of thinking has become in the culture. So I I see no reason why that would reverse overnight. It seems like that trend is going one way. Well, I wonder, I mean, Simon in his piece says it could turn out to be a brilliant marketing move. I I wonder whether it is. I think what seems to be happening is corporations are looking a lot at social media and reactions and interactions they get on pieces. And with something like this, they get an enormous number of positive interactions, positive feedback, and therefore the campaign feels like a success. But I, I don't really think it, it necessarily guarantees that it was. I mean, there was that amazing example. Did you remember the Pepsi advert with, I think, is it Kendall Jenner? Yeah. Was it last year? And that was another example of a, of a major corporation trying to sort of crash in on woke politics you know there was a sort of protest that the video was a protest of it sort of was made to look a little bit like an anti-trump protest and then these sort of cool hit people joining it then drinking pepsi and then i think they eventually share a can of pepsi with a police officer i may be misremembering it i've tried to erase it from my mind sounds great uh, but it was it was really and then it sort of backfired because it was seen as one of the cheesiest worst adverts ever but i think i think a lot of these corporations are wrong when they think that they're it feels safe to them because you know I suppose what was the once the radical side of the argument has always been the cooler, hipper thing. But I wonder now whether they're actually just a little bit out of the loop and, and whether these things will be good for them in the long run. I suspect in the long run it's not really going to matter. Actually. Coleman, do you think there could be a, a long-term effect, which is of the Just Burn It reaction that we've seen to this advert, which is actually a sort of deepening division between those who are woke and those who are Trump supporters and are annoyed by the by the message that Nike's trying to send. Yeah, I mean, this seems just like the kind of thing that would just deepen the culture war. I think I, I think I may have seen, did you see this news story about um, uh, the leader of Iran criticizing or taking Kaepernick's side in this? Yes, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, the former yeah. president of Iran. Yes, that was amazing. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, mean that, that tells you even... everything you need to know about how this kind of culture war reads overseas. And the best thing was all the people retweeting him approvingly. Yeah, you know, this exactly. is a sort of mass mass murderer, really. And yeah. uh, and he wasn't even he was so trolly. I mean, that's what it's also silly and trolly. He was he didn't even sort of get stuck into the argument. He said, "What a shame that uh, you know a great NFL player is not uh, Colin Kaepernick is not playing." It was a sort of lame attempt. Mm. I mean. If you didn't know who he was, you might have just thought he was a sort of NFL fan. 
but he's not. He's he's trolling. But let me just circle back to something you said a couple minutes ago. I think the the Pepsi ad that backfired. I think that backfired not because it was a social ju- justice woke attempt at you know far left politics. I think it was a bad attempt, and that's why it backfired. And it was cheesy and poorly done. But my intuition, and this could be wrong, time will tell, is that endorsing Kaepernick about police police violence, because that's already a thing in the world. They're not creating a new commercial from scratch. Well, I, I suppose they're they're you know he he'll have his own brand with them, but they're just endorsing something that's already happened and is real in the world. That, it, it feels seems to me it that definitely that may feels not backfire a, in the same way. It definitely feels a bit cooler than the, the yeah. rather lame Kendall Jenner stunt. Yeah. But yeah. but I wonder whether I mean I remember a few years ago after Tiger Woods had all those affairs and kind of disappeared from public. He's a big Nike figure, and they did a comeback advert with him where he talked to his dead fa- recently deceased father, to the, addressing the camera as though it was his father, and it was a supremely weird stunt and. Everybody said this is the craziest thing ever, but of course, just like it, just like the Colin Kaepernick things, it gets a lot of social media interaction, and people think it's a great success. Does it benefit Nike, or is Nike so big anyway that it doesn't really matter? And that's the interesting thing, isn't it, Coleman, that all of this is viewed through a social media lens. So these adverts aren't really being made for magazine readers, for television viewers. They're being made for people who are on Twitter reacting against one another, sort of bouncing off one another. Is that effective, do you think, in terms of actually selling trainers? My my intuition is that whoever works for Nike and is paid to make sure that these kinds of things work out for their bottom line probably knows so much more about this than I do in terms of market research. That's very humble Which, of you. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it. It's just. I mean, it's just an, an educated guess. Because I'm going to uh, arrogantly uh, stick with the yeah, with on, my Freddie. line you that know they're, better. they're getting it wrong. <laughs> they're getting it wrong. I don't know what I'm talking about, but I think they're getting it wrong. No, I think, I, I mean, I think, well, if, if we want about to talk to, about people working for Nike, I'd, I'd love to see how Nike would react to one of their factory workers who's working for less than $2 a day if they took a knee in protest <laughs> at their working conditions. I mean, I think the sort of sanctimony and the hypocrisy is really... It's very woke. It really It's very woke and it, very, it sticks in the crawl. And I think the more people think about it, the more off-put they'll be. But as I say... It, you're probably right, Coleman, in that it, it, people don't really think that deeply about it. It's just a branding exercise, and it's quite a sort of cool branding exercise. Coleman, last word. Yeah, I mean, I think the point you make about, you know, I think the the workers of Nike get something like 2.5% of their revenue, or, you know, the assembly line workers, that is. It is a profound irony that they are embracing a far-left cause where you would think the far-left would be exactly where a multi-billion dollar corporation like Nike would get the most criticism from. Thanks, Coleman. Thanks, Freddie. And that's all for this week. But if you want to hear more from Freddie on US politics, do tune in to our weekly Americano podcast. And if you enjoyed this podcast, do subscribe, rate and review on the iTunes store. We would love to hear from you. Pick up this week's issue to read all the pieces discussed in the podcast, as well as more from Gary Stengert, Damien Thompson and me, Isabel Hardman. This week's magazine is also home to Spectator Schools, in which Fraser Nelson writes about his dilemma as a father in choosing between state and private schools. Thanks for listening, and do join us again next week. (laughs) 